Morning, y'all. How's it going? I'm going to pray and we can dive into this. Dear Jesus, thank you so much that you are the God who is present with us in all things. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be worthy in your sight, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I start, I want to just um, kind of add a strong encouragement for you all to consider being a part of Jubilee Service Day next weekend. I'm your family life pastor. I'm the guy who cares about your kids and about your kids growing and being nurtured in the faith and stepping into an adulthood where they're rooted and grounded. One of the best ways I can help you do that is encouraging you to live out your faith with your kids, to serve, to talk with them about why we serve, why God's justice is important. I can tell them stuff all day long. There's nothing more powerful than them being with you and that happening. And so if you can make the time next weekend to be there, please do so. And then please join us for worship the next day at Newport High School. Again, we won't be worshiping here, but you can join us on the football field and worship in the park with the larger church at Bellevue. So, all right. By show, I want to show of hands, who here, like me, sometimes had their mouths washed out with soap as a kid? <laughs> For me, it was that bright green palm olive, um, just a big spoonful of it. Um, I, had a, I had a penchant for four-letter words. I don't think it'll shock any of you that I was a pretty mouthy kid. And palm olive was about the only deterrent my mom had against me because I was also pretty willful, so I was the kid who'd be like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Um, <laughs> the bottle came out. And I had to sit there and it coating my mouth. And I remember seeing the Christmas story. I thought a bar might be better because we didn't have that. But then I was like coating, foam issues, I'm not sure. It just sounds like this whole thing stinks. Um, but the reality, the reason that I stepped into that is I wasn't the biggest kid growing up. I, you know, I was the younger brother by five years, and so punches were not going to get me very far, and so I needed other tactics. My middle school vice principal one time, because I was in his office a lot for being mouthy, told my mom that I had a hummingbird body and an alligator mouth. <laughs> yeah. I said, I better watch out because I'm going to get the snot knocked out of me, and I didn't care because I also thought I was right all the time. So, But I learned at an early age that words had a really powerful effect, that they were potent, that there was meaning behind them, and that with words, I could hurt. And in fact, I realized I could do more harm with a word than I could with a punch, and so I just gave up altogether going down that route. My brother, I'd leave that to him, because I knew I could prevail. The reality is, is that what I found out is that the injury that I could cause and the potency of words and what they mean was huge. And it wasn't until later in life that I learned how to use them in ways that were honorable, but from that, and kind of as I walked on that journey, I really found uh, meaning in knowing what words mean and using them well, and that language is important. And that's why I've really liked our sermon series this summer titled, What Does It Mean? Because we've been taking words we use in the church that are sometimes misused, misunderstood, or missed altogether, and we've been trying to unpack them anew. And today is no different, but today is my day, and I drew the short straw, and I get to talk about evil. <laughs> yeah, four-letter word is it would happen. Um, I, you should know that, you know, Danica would relate to this. In seminary, we just would always dream of the day we could preach on this topic. Because this is the topic that you all get out of bed to hear about. And this is the topic that is just the pinnacle of preaching. No. I'd be lying if I said that it was true, but I think it's an important topic to talk about. And I actually think part of that sentiment is the reason it's important to talk about, because we don't talk about it. We treat it like a four-letter word. And it's not because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. In fact, it has a lot to say about it. But we shun it like a four-letter word, and we don't talk about it, and we tuck it away because we don't know what to do with it. And so we fling the word around inappropriately when we do use it and without care for what it means. And as a result, from using it well and understanding its true meaning, we don't talk about it, and we ignore it, and then we don't know what to do with it. And that's what I want to spend time talking about today. What is evil? 
What do we do with it? What are the problems with it? How do we understand it? How does God call us to live in the midst of it? So before we start, I, thought, I, th- I think we should define evil. And traditionally, it's put into two categories. You have moral evil, which is usually connected to things that people or thoughts, you know, things that people do or thoughts that people have that lead to evil things. Um, I think, you know, like me, me yelling at my brother and saying inappropriate things. You could put that in the category of evil. You have natural evil, which is more associated to like larger phenomenons that we kind of can't control but are just awful altogether. So think like hurricanes, tornadoes, taking the SATs, visiting your in-laws. <laughs> just kidding. Um, maybe. Um, the reality is, is that there's evil in the world, big and little. There's all kinds of evil, and we're called as Christians to face it no matter what, how big or how small it is. But the biggest thing I think that we need to suss up to and we need to talk about is that evil is not an out there thing. Evil is an in here thing. Evil is an in me and in us thing. It's something that we all have to deal with. But I think that a lot of times, a lot of us are content to acknowledge and say, sure, there's evil in the world, but not me. I might do some bad things here and there, and sure, I sin a little, like I dabble there, here and there in it, but I'm not a bad person. I'm not an evil person. And if I was ever confronted with evil, I could stand up to it. I wouldn't do horrible things. And I think sometimes we assume that it's only people who have names like Hitler and Stalin and Bin Laden or Hussein that are capable of doing truly evil things. And so we just move on about our lives. The reality is, though, is that we have to push against this sentiment because even though we might not think we have the stomach for evil, and that we would have the opportunity to not engage it if presented with the opportunity, I disagree, and I want to push pretty hard on that. There's a guy named Alexander Soltsine, and he was a Russian writer and um, historian and a short story author, and he was also one of the most outspoken critics of the Soviet Union and its totalitarian regime. He was one of the guys that led the charge on, on revealing the horrors and atrocities of their gulag forced labor camp system. And when presented with this idea that, you know, there are some people who are, who are evil, but we're all basically good, um, his response, I think, is amazing. He just goes, if only it were that simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them and from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who wants to cut, cut off a piece of their own heart? He knew that there was a line between good and evil. And he knew that line which people like us tend to think is fixed and impermeable with us on the good side and other people on the bad side. He knew that line was movable. He knew that line was, was permeable. He knew that good people could be seduced to do bad and evil things. And in preparing for today, I was reminded of a case that I had to study when I was at the United States Army Chaplain School. I was there in the summer of 2008, and that was four years after the world became aware of the atrocities that were committed at a remote prison in Iraq called Abu Ghraib. And in 2004, a soldier who was there had leaked information and shared photographs of what was happening to the prisoners being held there, or some of them. And it was nothing short of of reprehensible and horrible. It was awful. And as young chaplains, we were asked to study this case and to go, how did this happen? You know, how, how did, you know, trained soldiers, how did this happen to them? 
And as I began to study this case, what we were learning is that they, they were holding those prisoners and they, they were needing to get information out of them to find out what the forced forces of Saddam Hussein were doing and they weren't getting it from them. And as we followed the pathway through of what had happened, I made this assumption initially that these people must have just been exposed to some horrible trauma or, or, the, or just the reality of combat was so awful for them that they'd almost detached themselves from any sort of humanity or kind of um, ethic. And that's how they, they, were, they could be different enough for me to be able to do this. But the reality is, when we started studying this, is that these people weren't that, is that they were trained United States military police that were operating this prison, and that they were an Army Reserve unit from Maryland, and they'd been in country for less than a year. So the crazy thing about that is, you know, like, nine months after they're there, these atrocities are being reported, but ten months before, they could have been your kid's math teacher. They could have been the guy who was bagging your groceries. They could, I was a reservist. They could have been me. It could have been the person sitting next to you. It could have been you. They weren't hardened soldiers, and they weren't people who were awful that we could kind of shun and say you're other and apart from us. And what was more fascinating, too, as we started to study it, is that the, these abuses were only happening in one area of the prison on one shift. And we started to ask why. What we found out is that they were all happening in Tier 1A, which was the interrogation hold, and it's where the CIA was operating, a lot of private contractors were working out of there, and it was their job to interrogate prisoners in order to get information about the insurgency and how to move forward, and they weren't getting the answers they were looking for. And so these interrogators pushed the military police to say, hey, we need you to kind of take the gloves off. We need you to soften up the enemy. We need your help to get the answers we need to know. And so in the midst of that system, they started to engage in a level of abuse and humiliation that was nothing short of reprehensible. And I'm going to refrain from detailing it further here, um, but I guess the way I can put it is it was so awful, it's one of the few moments that I was ashamed to wear the same uniform as people who could do that. And what was fascinating, though, is we started looking into this, and we were reading case studies and reports and kind of about all these different soldiers, is they were highly decorated. These were not also people that you were like, well, you know, there, there's a couple bad apples in every, in every basket. Like, this, these must have been them. No, these were the people that I would have looked at as an officer and as a leader and said, these are the guys I'm going to count on. They were respected. They were role models. They were people that were described as good what we came to conclude in our study was that even good people could be terrible, of awful, and evil things. And given the circumstances and pressures that anyone has the ability to, to participate in acts like that. And I was deeply troubled because it shattered this illusion that I have that I was a good person and that I could never do that. And as I was working through that, I came across um, some writings of Donald Miller. He's a Christian author. And he has this one quote that was really helpful to me to put it in context. And he says, I think that every living person, every person who is awake to the functioning principles of their own realities has a moment where they stop blaming the problems of the world on group thinking or on a humanity or on authority. And they start to face themselves. I hate this more than anything, he goes on to say. This is the hardest principle within Christian spirituality for me to deal with that the problem is not out there, that the problem is the needy beast of a thing living inside my chest. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today. What do we do with the brokenness that's in each one of us? 
that has the capacity to participate in the evil of this world. And as we make our way to answering that question, we need to acknowledge the problems we have in dealing with evil. And one of the first ones among them I think we really struggle with is that this, there's a larger notion within our culture, within our society. It frames how we see the world, and that is of progress. This idea, this march of progress that we're on, that we can steadily advance and by our own abilities or by a little more education, a little more develop, by a little more science, by a little more whatever, we can move beyond the problems of our day. And in the midst of this march, we ignore evil until it hits us in the face. Our lives, especially, I, have, I hate to say, in privileged places like this, are such that we can arrange them in order to not have to engage the evil of this world. And we can live within the idea that the things we do know about can be progressed beyond and we go about our days. And so it's a byproduct of our privilege because we have the freedom and the power to ignore it, and so we do. And we ignore it until we are forced to, compelled to by nothing we can control until it hits us in the face. And then we're surprised by it when it does. Those moments when you think your communities and your home or your neighborhood are safe until you hear about two little girls that were harmed by someone they loved and it shakes you to the core and you're shocked because you thought your neighborhood was a safe place. We don't have categories to cope with things like that. We've chosen not to develop them in a lot of ways. And so we also don't have categories to, to deal with larger renewed evils like renewed tribalism and genocide in Africa or the Middle East, to name one. And we fool ourselves into this notion that the world is basically okay. And then we're puzzled and shocked by things like the refugee crisis in Syria when it comes crashing down in our shores. The seemingly endless, tragic wall of humanity that has come and knocking at the doors of Western countries like America who are seeking asylum and we don't know what to do about it. We ignore these problems when they don't hit us in the face and then we're shocked and puzzled at what to do when they finally do. And in the midst of that shock and in that ignorance, we respond in some pretty immature and dangerous ways. And I think one of the the best ways to look at these immature reactions are best seen close up when we ask ourselves how we react to our own lives or immediate circumstances. And so I have some questions for you. I want you to think about these in your head. First, what are you angry about right now? Something that makes your blood boil. What's something that frustrates you? Maybe who has done something which you feel is unjust or unfair? How have you chosen to cope with it? How do you explain it? How do you think about it? How have you come to terms with it, if you have? As you're processing through that, I would offer that there's kind of two well-worn pathways that we tend to walk down in the midst of those questions. First, one thing we can do is we can project evil on others, generating this culture of blame. It's always someone else's fault. It's society's fault. It's government's fault. It's this or that political candidate's fault. But I, I am innocent. I am blameless in the midst of it all. And claiming the status of a victim, it's an odd thing, but it feels like these days has come, become this new cultural sport to where we, people clamor for the moral high ground in which they can blame everyone else and they can come out pure and clean to hold that spot. Alternatively, the other pathway we can walk down is we can project all of this evil onto ourselves and imagine that we're to blame for it all. And this is one of the normal causes for depression, but it's more than that. If we think about this politically, on one hand, we have those who will tell us that 
Um, the world we face, the, the defaults, and everything we deal with are the faults of somebody else, like the terrorists, or the asylum seekers, or the criminals, or the minorities. And on the other hand, we have those who will tell us in kind of the classic pop psychology of our time that it's all our fault, that the terrorists are terrorists because we've allowed what we've allowed to have happen in their country, that the asylum seekers are fleeing the effects of our previous foreign policies, that the criminals and minorities, and yes, we lump those two together, are in the fight they're in because we've destroyed their neighborhoods, livelihoods, and they're the victims of affluent society. What's harder is the fact that there's a grain of small truth in either of those sides makes it even more difficult to figure out a way through it. But the culture of blaming someone else or blaming ourselves ultimately are inappropriate and dangerous ways to respond to evil. Because these things aren't playing out theoretically. This is not something that we need to figure out rhetoric to put it in a box so we can go to bed at night. These things are real. They're playing out in our streets, on our TVs, in our schools. These are real things we have to contend with that need more than empty rhetoric. And I would add that ignoring all of it is not an answer either. This is the new and current problem of evil. We have discovered that it is still a four-letter word and we do not know what to do about it. My initial thought is to say, let's wash our mouths out with soap. My mom's got a big bottle at home. Let's figure this out. <laughs> and at first I thought, well, that's kind of a dumb response. But then I thought that's exactly what the gospel is doing to some extent. Is it invites us into a truth that cleanses us and invites us into a future where we're free from the other, those other things, the things that are grimy, the things that are dirty. And the gospel can cleanse us. And what you may have noticed is I haven't talked about the gospel yet, and that's been intentional. Because if you... I, up until this point, it's a little comfortable to walk down those other pathways, right? Blame other people, blame myself to do that. And we forget to think maybe God has a different pathway for us. Maybe there's a third way to respond to all of this. I don't know about you, but I can't watch the news anymore because that's what it feels like I watch. I don't care what channel you turn on or what your affiliation is or what orient, you know, it doesn't matter. Any channel you turn on, somehow it's our fault or their fault, and in the midst of it, I feel hopeless and I don't know what to do. The gospel has a different way to respond to this. It has a third way filled with love and hope. I say that because the gospel stands centrally and crucially, unique in all of time and history, against all the world's great literature, all of its great theories, all of its great visions. It is the story of a creator God taking responsibility for the evil in the world and in us, bearing the weight of our, our problems and our burdens on his shoulders. And I think we should be clear, too, that the Bible would agree with the idea that the line between good and evil runs right through us. And we see it as we read our passage from, from John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through them. Anyone left out of that? God doesn't say, hey, these nations are, I've come to save, but these ones are okay, or this ethnicity, or this race, or this socioeconomic class, or this or that. It's the world. All of us are in need of this salvation that he's come to offer. And the Gospels tell us a story of how he went to his death as the story of how cosmic and global evil and personal evil are met by the sovereign, saving love of our God. The Gospels don't offer us some philosophical or theoretical notions for how to deal with evil. It's why you don't find a how-to list for how to handle it so that we can diminish evil in our own lives. 
Instead, what you find is a God who loves us fully and shows us what it means to actually deal with evil on behalf of his people. They are saying this is how God rescues his people from the evil they're trapped in, and he does it through suffering for us. And this is the point at which the recognition that the line between good and evil runs right through me and every one of us is met by the proclamation that the death of Jesus is for me and in my place and on my behalf. Throughout the New Testament, this death is seen as an act of love, both for the death of Jesus himself and the love of God who sent his son in bodily form to express his love for us. And as a result, our covenant, our relationship with God is renewed. Sins are forgiven. And the long night of sorrow, exile, and death is over. And by the grace of God, a new day dawns. And within these things, not as a foundation, but as an outworking of them. We see Jesus' suffering and death as an example of how we're summoned to love one another in return. This is where we need to remind ourselves that part of how when we talk about the cross is that we're also talking about the future that God is working towards. Here is where the personal meaning of the cross, for me at least, becomes very clear. Because there will be a time when I, even me, the sinner that I am, will be totally sinless where God has completed the work of grace in me. But I already enjoy in anticipation of that future, forgiveness in the present and a new life in the spirit. And this is made possible by Jesus going to the cross for me. Then we're summoned by the most powerful love in the world to live by the pattern of death and resurrection, repentance and forgiveness in our daily lives. We find that the problem of evil is not simply or purely a cosmic or out there thing. It's a problem about me. And God has dealt with the problem on the, son, on the cross of his son, the Messiah. The cross is the place in which God loves us the most. And so it's also the place where we find our response to the evil in the world. What we find is that while evil is still a four-letter word, thank God, so is love. And love is the most powerful thing that has ever existed. But that's not just a nice idea for us to think about or consider. What we have to remember is that the love of God given to us in his son Jesus is a bold statement that love is lived out. This is not a spectator sport that we're invited in. You know, we all have a role here. Love is a verb, it's an action. There's all those things you hear, but that... Just because it sounds pithy and trite or kind of silly when people say it does not mean it's not true. Jesus did not give us a set of principles and nice ideas to live by. He calls us into a life and a life is lived and a life has action in the midst of it. And as we remember that, that the love of God is for us, we are compelled as people redeemed by evil to participate in the liberation of others by loving them so fully and completely that they come to know Jesus themselves. In doing so, we follow God into this new world that he has for us, into the future marked out for us, marked by hope and love. As I say that, I'm reminded of a passage from Isaiah 58 that I'm going to read in a second. And as I do, I want you to close your, close your eyes and imagine the picture that he starts to draw. I want you to pay attention to if any of it grabs you or if any of it speaks to you or what your part in this world might be as we triumph over evil. 
This is the kind of fast that I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, and being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around once more. Your righteousness will pave the way. The God of glory will secure your passage and then you will pray and God will answer. You'll call out and he will say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims and quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the rubble of the past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, and make the community livable again. This is our call. This is our task. To accept that there is evil in the world in you and me, and from that acceptance, we are called to find a new pathway, to cut a new trail to find a different way to deal with the evil in the world and to follow in the footsteps of our God who sent his son to die on a cross for us to show us a new way to overcome and restore and revive the whole of creation. We are given hope and love, and those are four-letter words that are more powerful than evil ever can be. May they guide us to cut that new trail in the pursuit of God as he redeems the whole of creation. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you so much that you are the God who has begun a good work in us and you will continue that work unto its end. And as you give us dreams and hopes and visions of a future in which we are no longer bound by the evil that seeks to keep us from you, be with us in the presence as we live in that tension. Free us from bondage. Free us from that which cages us and help us to find a new future of hope and of love marked by you and your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.